Hey everyone, welcome to the Faith Chapel podcast. We are so glad to have you join us. Faith Chapel exists to help people follow Jesus, be transformed by Jesus, and be on mission with Jesus. No matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you're welcome here. If you have any questions about who we are or what you hear, you can visit faithchapel.cc or email podcast at faithchapel.cc. We'd love to hear from you. All right, let's dive into this week's message. Well, hello, everyone. Hope that you are doing well today. Uh, I'm not Nate, if you didn't know. Uh, Nate woke up yesterday not feeling very well, so we're shifting. We're pivoting, and uh, my name is Evan, and I get the privilege of being the young adult pastor here at Faith Chapel. And uh, I'm really excited for this weekend. Uh, Nate called me yesterday around noon and was like, hey, what do you got? And I said, I'm going to bring a message that we've already done in our young adult ministry. So if you're a young adult in the room, you get this one twice. So there's no excuse for you to not understand the principles that we're going to talk about this weekend. Uh, We're going to be in the book of Acts. It's an incredible book written by the Apostle Luke. And uh, it's a, a recounting of the Acts of the Apostle. And for us to jump in this week, I have to set it up a little bit because we're going to be primarily in Acts chapter 3 and 4. But in Acts chapter 2, there's a significant thing that sets up the entire account of the Acts of the Apostles, and that is Pentecost. Pentecost is this incredible moment where the Holy Spirit indwells in the followers of Jesus, and they start speaking in all of these different languages. And, and everyone that is in and around them, they say, like, what's going on? Like, they're, they're preaching in my tongue and 3,000 people come to know Jesus, and it's just the first thing that happens in this incredible book that we're going to look at. And the second thing is this, is that there's, there's this interaction in the first part of Acts chapter 3 between the apostles Peter and John and this lame beggar that is at the gates of the temple. And they walk up, and this man has been lame for, for close to 40 years, and he's, he's begging for money, and Peter looks at him in the eyes, and he says, silver and gold, I have none but in the name of Jesus Christ from Nazareth, walk. And he walks. And people are amazed and astonished. And that's where we're gonna pick up this morning in Acts chapter three, verses five, or excuse me, verses 11 through 13. And it says this. While the man held on to Peter and John, this is the man that was just healed. He is literally clinging to them because he's so excited. All the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us if, as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. This last part's just kind of like a little little shade that Peter's throwing at the Jewish people there. You see, people were astonished. They were amazed it was happening right in front of their eyes, and yet... Peter and John's response is kind of astonishment in their own. They, they look at them and they say, like, why are your expectations so low? Why would you think that God wouldn't be able to heal this man? And I think the first question that we need to ask this weekend is, is an applica- application question for us is, what are our expectations of God? The people that were astonished, the people that were amazed at what was happening These were God-fearing Jewish people who had come into the temple on a regular basis and sacrificed and done all the things and and had reverence for God, and yet God heals someone, and they are astonished, and they are amazed. 
And yet, if I look at my own life, I would probably say that even though that I've been following Jesus for the better portion of my life since I was a kid, if someone was healed in front of me, I would be astonished and amazed. And I think that there's this fine line that, that we so often fail to toe correctly. That, that our expectations of God become something that is minuscule and we put God in this small framework and, and we, we tend to, to have a logical expectation of what God can do in our life. But when we have expectations, when we ask ourselves, do we have holy expectations of God? Do we have dedicated expectations of God that would say, hey, I, I, not, not in a sense that's like, hey, do this or else I'm not going to believe in you. But that we would have the faith to say, like, I, have, I serve a big God and I believe that the God who hung the stars in the sky is the same God who's willing to step right into my individual circumstance and do something significant. You see, the Jewish people and, and me on regular occasions, we, we have a logical framework. And I think that Peter and John are a perfect example of people who walked with Jesus. They had, they had a life dedicated to Jesus and they saw him do things on a daily basis. And I don't think they ever were not in awe. I think that they were always in awe, but I think that they always had illogical faith. And my prayer for the church is that we would have illogical faith because we're, we're basing this entire thing, this entire idea of following Jesus on something that was illogical in the first place. Why would God make himself man and come die for broken, messy sinners? That's not logical. That doesn't fit inside of our, inside of our human capacity or our human understanding. So when God does something illogical, when, when, when God does something amazing, would we be people who respond with illogical faith and say, I cannot wait to see him do it again? You see, too often we separate our astonishment and our expectation. We can be in awe of God and how he works while simultaneously saying, of course he did. So what happens next? The priests and the captain of the temple guard throw Peter and John into prison because they're afraid of having a debate. And they throw them in prison because they're preaching Jesus' resurrection, his messiahship, and not only that, but the resurrection of all of God's people on the final days. And what they understand is that that means that something significant is about to happen. And I think that there's a lot of, of context that needs to be unpacked here. And I'm going to try to streamline it by just simply asking this question. Wouldn't you think that Jewish people would be excited about the promised Messiah? Wouldn't you think that they'd be excited that these disciples were saying that he had come? Maybe, but not if you were in power and not if you helped put him on a cross. See, what was happening in this specific context is the Sadducees, who are the religious aristocrats, the, the wealthy, the elite, they're looking at this message and they're saying, oh no, we have it pretty good. And if the Messiah has come, we might be in trouble. You see, the religious elite had a stranglehold on the Jewish faith. They were the top of the religious totem pole. They had a ton of money and wealth, and they were in an intimate relationship with Rome, which was the country that was ruling the world. And so this message threatened to flip everything right side up. And what they knew is if the Messiah had come and everything was being set into order, they were about to lose their status. They were about to lose their position. 
And if the message of Jesus was true, they just made a mistake. So where we find ourselves in Acts chapter 4, verses 5 through 11 is the next day. And it says this. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. The religious elite asked the question, by what name or what power did you do this? Now this goes back to during Jesus' ministry, if you read through the Gospels, as he is performing miracles and he's doing incredible things and people are following him in droves, the only question that they have is, how are you doing this? By what name are you doing this? Because they believe that Jesus was possessed. So there's no other explanation. Like the only way that you could be doing this on this level is if you were possessed. And Peter, just like to the lame beggar saying, in the name of Jesus Christ from Nazareth, walk, responds to these people and says, it's by the name of Jesus Christ from Nazareth that we did this. I love what the author Luke says and. It could be Peter recounting it. It could be Luke using his own words, but they use the phrase filled by the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, Peter, a disciple who got to physically walk with Jesus, understood something at a significant foundational level that if it was left up to me and my abilities and my power, I would not be able to do this. But because the Holy Spirit is with me, because Jesus Christ from Nazareth flows through me, this man was healed. Peter, John, Luke, they all are trying to make a significant point here, saying this isn't about us. This is about Jesus. This is about Jesus Christ from Nazareth. This is why this happened in the first place. I think it leads us to a couple questions, the first one being this. How often do we invite the Holy Spirit to move through us? Um, I get the privilege of hanging out with, with young adults regularly, but I also hang out with junior hires and high schoolers. And a couple years ago, me and our high school pastor, Shane O'Brien, were, were running our junior high and high school ministry. And uh, I want to preface this, parents. This is, is not a normal occurrence. So don't think that like, there's fist fights happening at, at youth group all the time. Like, that's not, not what happens. But a couple years ago, I'm standing in the lobby talking to a student, and my friend Tate, who's in here tonight, I'm not going to point him out because I don't want y'all to look at him, but he comes out and he has two students and he's ushering them out and one kid's just like really upset and the other kid just has blood all over his face and he's like, I need you now. And I was like, all right. And so we walk outside and um, the first five minutes I did not invite the Holy Spirit into that situation. 
I was Papa Bear. I was angry. I was, I was mad. Even Tate was like, I didn't think you could get that angry. And I was like, I didn't either. But I was just like so upset at the situation. And we separate the kids. And I'm sitting with the kid who, who threw the punch. And uh, I'm just like, why? Why? And he just breaks down, just tears. And this is a big kid. <laughs> and he is, he's just weeping. In my head, I was like, oh, you think he's in trouble, so he's, he's upset. And he's like, this is what's going on at home, in my friend groups, in my mind, in all of these things. And I just sat there and went, oh, no. I said, Jesus, I, I need you. Because I didn't know what to say. I didn't have words. I didn't have a magic formula that was going to fix this situation. And Jesus stepped in, and I can't even tell you what I said in that conversation, but what I do know is that I left that conversation with a relationship. It was because I got out of my own head and I invited Jesus in. But there's a second part to this story. Dad shows up, probably three inches taller than me. I'm not a small guy. And he's been on a bender. And he is uninterested and disengaged. He doesn't care. He doesn't care that it happened. And I said, Lord, I need you again. Because left to my own response, this is going to be a really messy thing. And I might not be a pastor by the end of the night. And I got to talk to someone who was 25 years older than me. And once again, not really remembering what I said, but knowing that what I said was full of grace instead of anger. And yet I asked myself the question, why is that not my gut response in my everyday life? Why does it take conflict, and why does it take an emergency for me to invite the Holy Spirit in? Why don't I invite the Holy Spirit in on a regular basis? And maybe you could ask yourself the same question. The God who created all of this, who sent his son to die for us, offers an advocate, a helper, a comforter, an encourager. Would we be people who invite him into our lives daily and say, give me the words, give me the actions, because I can't do this on my own. We'll see a dramatic difference between the situations where we try to handle it on our own and the ones where we lean into the Holy Spirit. Second question would be this, how often when questioned do we publicly point to Jesus? I love this interaction between Peter and John and, and the Sadducees and Pharisees and the religious elite and, and the audience that is around. We can say that they, they had every opportunity to be like, I did it. <laughs> I healed him. It's by the name of Peter that I healed him. But he just points everything back to Jesus. And he made something really clear is that, that everything that I do and everything that I am points to Jesus. And, and I asked myself the question, if people at the end of my life or even currently, if somebody said, hey, if, if you could tell me what, what Evan is all about, would Jesus be a priority? Would people say, oh, yeah, like he's all about Jesus? It's a foundational element of everything that he does, everything that he says, the way that he parents, the way that he's a husband, the way that he's a friend. Is Jesus at the center of what we do and believe and do people actually know it? Because here's the frustrating thing for me is that I've grown up in the church and, and we've talked about your personal relationship with Jesus, which is it's 100% valid, it's 100% true. Our, our relationship with Jesus is like nobody else's. We have a personal relationship with Jesus, but personal does not mean private. Personal 
means that Jesus is willing to step into our individual circumstances and say, hey, I'm moving and I'm convicting and I'm encouraging and I'm doing all these things, but we should take that and we should say, thank you, Lord, but if I need to be encouraged that way, I should probably encourage others that way. But if I'm being convicted in something, I should probably be able to go to my brothers and sisters in Christ and say, hey, since you say that you follow Jesus, I think we should stop doing that thing we're doing. Personal does not mean private. And then there's this word that Peter uses, cornerstone. Many of us would recognize this word because of worship, like Christ alone, cornerstone, weak made strong in the Savior. It's a great song. But do we actually know what cornerstone means? See, this word that Peter uses is intentional. He's quoting Psalm 118, who these religious people would have known by heart. Psalm 118, verses 5 through 14 say this. Maybe, there it is. When hard-pressed, I cried to the Lord. He brought me into a spacious place. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? The Lord is with me. He is my helper. I look in triumph on my enemies. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in humans. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Let's stop there. Can we go back one slide, please? He's talking to people who are in bed with Rome who are trusting princes, who are trusting people more than they're trusting God. Peter was a preacher. Next slide, please. All the nations surrounded me, built, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them down. They surrounded me on every side, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them down. They swarmed around me like bees, but they were consumed as quickly as burning thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them down. I was pushed back and about to fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. And verses 21 through 24 say, I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected. Remember, he said the stone you builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day let us rejoice today and be glad. What Peter was trying to make clear to everyone listening is that the Messiah that they were so desperately waiting for had already come. Jesus. Jesus, Jesus. He says his name over and over again. Jesus Christ from Nazareth. Jesus Christ from Nazareth. Because he wants it to hit home. You see, cornerstone is defined as the rock upon which the weight of the entire structure rests. See, here's the problem, is that the religious people of the time were so caught up in their own religion that they missed the Messiah. They were so caught up in inward focus. They were so caught up in their status and their position and all of these different things and obeying human rules instead of focusing on Jesus. And my prayer is that we wouldn't fall into the same trap. My prayer is that we as the church would not get so caught up in checking the religious boxes that we don't focus on Jesus, that we follow people with platforms instead of Jesus. Would we be people who focus on the Messiah? Would we be so, so, so laser focused on Jesus and what he has to say that we would never miss him? that our ears would be tuned to what Jesus is saying, not what culture is saying, not to what people are saying, but to what Jesus is saying. 
chapter four, verses 12 through 13, go on to say, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Unschooled and ordinary men. This has to be hands down one of my favorite passages in all of scripture. I think the reason is that I can't help but think of like the religious snobs, like the elite, who are just like blown away at the fact that these are unschooled, ordinary men. They're not like us, and yet they're doing all of these things. They were astonished that they healed a beggar, for sure. They were astonished that they spoke with eloquence. You wouldn't expect ordinary men to be able to speak and compose their thoughts in a culture that, that valued that. They were in shock. But this is the point that we cannot miss. It says that they took note that these men had been with Jesus. What made them noteworthy was not their abilities. It was not the actions that they were taking. It was their proximity to Jesus. What made them noteworthy was not their ability. It was their proximity. They took note that they had been with Jesus. That this man who they claimed to be the Messiah, they they were people who weren't just saying it, they were people who were living it. They were people who were walking lockstep with Jesus the entire way. And even though he had been crucified and resurrected and was nowhere to be seen now, yet they were still saying, Jesus Christ from Nazareth, they took note that they had been with Jesus. My hope is that as people look at you and I, they would take note that they wouldn't look at our our actions, they wouldn't look at our abilities, they wouldn't look at our our qualifications. They would say, man, they've been with Jesus. Many of you might not know this, but I didn't go to school for this. A lot of people assume there was years of seminary, or maybe you didn't, maybe you're like, the way this guy, he did not go to seminary. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus got me here in a really roundabout way, and, and, uh, I'm very thankful that he did. But there's a lot of uh, fear that goes into preaching to people and teaching people and counseling people when you didn't have years and years and years of actual educational study. And one time, not one time, many times, people have told me that I should stop doing it. And there's one interaction that I'll never forget. I was sitting in a coffee shop with this guy and And he just looked at me and said, you are underqualified to speak to people about Jesus. Oh, and I was angry. I was mad. And I think on on one level, I was like, I agree. I agree with you. Like still, like five years into full-time ministry, I'm like, absolutely. I am underqualified to speak to people about Jesus. But as we're talking about the Holy Spirit, this is one of those moments where, oh, Jesus is so good. And he walked, he just stepped into the situation and he said, Evan, it's not about your qualifications, it's about who's walking with you. I said, okay. And I said it to him, he rolled his eyes and he walked out of the coffee shop. 
I was like, that's okay. I don't need your validation. I got his. <laughs> See, <laughs> unschooled, ordinary men step in to this arena of religious elite and they talk and point people to Jesus. And what I want you to hear this morning is this, is that your qualification does not come from your schooling. It does not come from your experience. It does not come from what culture or church would deem extraordinary. It comes from Jesus, end of story, full stop. Your qualification comes from him. And if you're sitting in this room this morning and you're thinking, I can't impact the kingdom of God because I haven't done this or because I have done these things, please hear me when I say, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus Christ of Nazareth has deemed you worthy and qualified and loved. So what happens next? The Sadducees take a break. They talk among themselves. And then we see their conclusion and the disciples' response in Acts chapter four, verses 18 through 20. It says this. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. The last point today is this, let nothing stop us. There are gonna be plenty of reasons to stop talking about Jesus. It might be threats. Probably not for us, but there are Christians all over the world who can be thrown into prison or killed because of their faith. It might be the fear of lost relationships. It might be social pressure. It might be a myriad of other things. There's gonna be so many different reasons for us to stop talking about Jesus. There's one reason to keep talking about him. It's Jesus. See, as Jesus has done things in our lives and he has impacted us and he has changed our relationships and he's given us forgiveness and power and strength as, as we move towards others to introduce them to that power and that strength and that grace and that mercy, that forgiveness. My prayer is this, is that no matter the reason the world or our own humanity, our own fear would give us, let us be people who walk with Jesus and fall so deeply in love with him that we cannot help but talk about what we have seen and what we have heard. We hope that this helps you take your next step on your spiritual journey. If you'd like to get involved with the work and ministry of Faith Chapel, visit faithchapel.cc and click on Next Steps. If you'd like to speak to a pastor or connect with us in any way, email connect at faithchapel.cc. We look forward to connecting with you soon.